Well, I can be quite the chatterbox when I get home from work sometimes. I'm the type that comes home and talks Erica's ear off while she's fixing dinner in the kitchen. That's what happened on Tuesday when I got home from work. I had done, uh, begun my preparation for this sermon and I was very excited about the things I was learning. They were thrilling me and I was just eager to talk with her about them. So as I sat down at the table, at the table and she was there cooking and Lucas was on the floor and Kazai was sitting on my lap. And I was sharing with Erica about the gospel and the things uh, that this passage talks about. And then Keziah interrupted me. She said, Daddy, you know she's a sinner because I tell her to call me Poppy, but she insists on calling me Daddy. She says, Daddy, what is the gospel? And she made me stop for a moment. My two and a half year old daughter just asked me, What is the gospel? How would you answer her? What would you tell her? What is the gospel? So I looked her in her eyes and I said, Keziah, the gospel is that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for all of your sins. And if you believe in him, you'll be forgiven and you can live with God forever in heaven. That's the gospel. So simple. She's two and a half and I can tell she doesn't quite yet understand. But her little mind is trying to wrap around God's love. And you know, in this series we've set out to unpack the gospel. It wasn't our intention to preach this series, Redeemed by the Blood, uh, even up to into January. We didn't have a contentment with what we had planned. So Pastor Ralph and myself, we began to pray. Say, God, what do you want us to preach about? And as we talked, there was a definite consensus in the way God was leading us. And when it was brought to the elders, they loved the idea. And that we would unpack the gospel. Talk about this wonderful salvation that we have. In the world we live in, there are so many competing themes. But we believe Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. We believe that gospel. And we also know that within Christ's church there are other competing ideas. And we cannot, we cannot earn God's favor. That's that's not part of the gospel. We cannot earn God's favor. And there are other things that kind of get thrown in, but they're not the gospel. So what we want to do is talk about the gospel. Last week, we started where we ought to start when we talk about the gospel. The fact that we're all sinners. We are totally depraved, as Pastor Ralph said. Not that we are as bad as we can be, but that we're sinners to the core. And that our very lives have been marred by that reality. And today I have the great privilege of talking about what God did to mend that Today we'll set our eyes on the cross. We're going to gaze upon what Christ accomplished there and how His death can bring life. I certainly pray that none of you start thinking, I know this already. That the gospel wouldn't become dull in your ears. Because I'll say this much. 
what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about our salvation, has implications in the way we live our lives. And if it becomes dull in our ears, it will become dull in your life. So my prayer is that we would grow a passion for the gospel. Even this morning I read an article in the Red Eye newspaper from this past week where a guy had an editorial about hot dogs. And apparently the shape of a hot dog, the length, the roundness, is a choking hazard for children. So there's talk about redesigning the shape of a hot dog. And this guy was so bent out of shape. He's, no, that's not the way. A hot dog is this shape. He do anything. He was just rallying on and on and on about how he was so appalled that they were consider changing the shape of a hot dog. And I thought, you know, there are many things to be passionate about in life. Shouldn't the gospel be the most prominent? So I pray that God might ignite a passion in your hearts today as we open God's Word. Would you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5? And I'm going to read again what, Rand- what Mandy read already so well. From Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes here in the Bible. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray as we commit this to the Lord? Father in heaven, it is no small task to talk about the thing that you and your glorious mind crafted to bring about our redemption. God, here even in these words are truths that we will never begin to fully grasp and perhaps not even in eternity, God, because they are so wonderful. And Lord, we pray right now that you might stir our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would Move us as you ignite within us ears to hear and a heart to be engaged by these glorious truths that you inspired in this word. So God, we commit ourselves to you. God, I pray that your spirit might empower me, that I might speak with courage, Lord, and be clear in this glorious proclamation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Last week, Pastor Ralph preached from Romans chapter 3. And he made it quite clear. He says, There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. None seek for God. And it goes on in that language. Nobody is righteous. And then the problem is, well, what are we doing about our reality? What can we do about the fact that we are sinful to the core and that in our own efforts we cannot reach God? Well, Romans chapter 4 then addresses this issue. 
And Paul appeals to the man Abraham. And he says that Abraham had faith in God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was, was the very thing that God took note of and declared Abraham right before him. He said, Abraham, you are righteous in my sight because of your faith. And then Romans chapter 5, which I'll be preaching from right now, is in verse 1 it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means we have been declared right before God by faith, we have peace with God. Our status, our relationship with Him has changed. When we were sinners, it was one, but now that we have faith in God, it is another. He says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brought it about. Verse 2, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There is a hope about those who place their faith in Jesus. There's a hope that is eternal. It is in the glory of God that God will come through on his promises that we are his children and we can spend eternity with him when we place our faith in Jesus. He goes on in verse 3. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Like, what's that about? Well, he says, knowing that our sufferings produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, what Paul is saying here is, when we have faith in Jesus, we are given a hope of eternity. So in this life, when we suffer, we can rejoice because we know that God is at work developing character in us. And character produces hope. And hope does not be, is not put to shame. Our hope in God is secure when our faith is in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here in the first five verses. And then we get our passage for this morning where Paul transitions to talk why we have that hope. Sure, the Holy Spirit has been poured on, a, on us. He says in verse 5, He has sealed us with the hope. But this hope was accomplished on the cross. And that's what I want us to look at here. Chapter 5, verse 6. The Bible says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak. The word weak usually is in relation to our physical illness. Physically weak or frail. But here Paul certainly has in mind our spiritual state before God. That we are powerless before God to come to Him on our own efforts. We are frail, spiritually speaking. We cannot do this by ourselves. And there's a common worldview in our day today that says that man is basically good. I don't know if you've heard that before. That, that, that the very essence of our being is that we are good. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So don't believe that lie. Not one of us here escapes the grim realities of sin. All of us are sinful. All of us are still weak, as Paul says there in verse 6. Every lie we tell, every act of arrogance, all that we break, every moment of self-reliance, every self-centered way, 
Every act of rebellion, every lustful thought, every promiscuous act, every word gossiped, every false god worshipped, jealousy, envy, theft, they all condemn us before a righteous God. Not one of us escapes that reality. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So in a sense, we're all on death row. And our state apart from God is separation from Him for eternity. I recently watched the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've seen it. It's with similar themes where there's a character that you really begin to relate to. You really begin to like. You start rooting for this person. You cheer for them. You're happy when they succeed. You're sad when something bad happens. And in these movies, there usually is a sense of something happens and there's a betrayal that takes place. And I'm the type of person, I get really squirmy in my seat. I get upset. Because I'm watching this character who I have a great affection for and I just see what's going to happen. It's, it's so clear. The inevitable is there. They're going to trade. They're going to be hurt. And I want to do something about it. But the movie's been filmed. I could pause the movie, come back to it an hour later, press play. It's still going to happen. I can even skip the scene. But what, already, what I skipped did take place in the plot. I'm completely powerless to change the outcome of that story. And that's how we stand before God. We are completely powerless to change our situation. We are inevitably on a path for destruction. There's nothing we can do about it by ourselves. We can take pauses in life. We can change our career path. We can do this and do that. But before a holy God, we're powerless. C.J. Mahaney talks about this dilemma of our sin. Because since we are sinful, we can't atone for our own sin. And he says this. He said, here's my dilemma. I can't atone for my sin. I can't. And then he says, I cannot satisfy God's righteous requirements. My disobedience condemns me before a righteous God and I'm captive to sin. It is humanly impossible for me to free myself from sin. And then he says this, A divine rescue is necessary. I need a Savior. He says, I need a Savior. And that's why Paul says, For while we were still weak, powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That phrase, at the right time, is a beautiful phrase because we have something similar to that in Galatians 4, verse 4, when it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. See, God always had a plan to save humanity. He was never caught off guard, never surprised, never thought, what am I going to do about this scenario? But God, in His great will, always planned to crush His Son to save sinners. And at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you notice, He says, Christ died for the ungodly. 
on behalf of the ungodly. Go down to verse 8. We see, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we look at Jesus' death on the cross, his atonement for our sins, he was our substitute. He took our place. What we deserved, he bore on our behalf. He was and is our divine rescuer. Only he could do it. Jesus was fully God. So it was in his power to redeem. He was fully man, so he can be our replacement. And in that beautiful union, Jesus redeemed humanity for all who would trust in him. We see the extent of God's love here so clear. Verse 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, that's somebody who, uh, who is upright, who has a quality character about them. Someone would scarcely die for somebody like that. Though perhaps even for a good person who does good things, one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to save people who were good and righteous, but he saved people who were weak and powerless. And in the end of the day, God's love triumphed where human effort failed. That's where the gospel has to start. With God's love prevailing, with our sin condemning, and Jesus Christ's death redeeming us. But when we think about the cross, oftentimes our mind thinks quickly of the sufferings of Jesus. In our mind's eye, we can picture the blood coming from his brow because of the crown of thorns. In our mind's eye, we see the lashes on his back. We see his face grimace. We see his nail-pierced hands. And we think of his sufferings, which was done on our behalf. But at the cross, there was another spiritual element that was taking place. What was it about his death that makes us right before God? And that's what Paul begins to unpack for us in verse 9. He says this in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. He says, we have been justified by his blood. When Jesus was on the cross, his blood justified a sinner who would trust in him. The word justified is a big word, but it's an important word. It shows up 15 times in the book of Romans alone. And you may have heard of this phrase, justification by faith. It's so important that in fact in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation was established on this very thing, that we're justified by faith. At the very basic level, justification means that we are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. But so much more took place as well. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. He had to. He could not be on the cross as a sinner and pay for our sin. He lived as a righteous man his entire life without sin. So that when he did die as our substitute, as we talked about, 
He could take our place so that when the Father looks upon us and we place our faith in Jesus, the Father says, I don't see your sin. You are not guilty. I see the righteousness of my Son. And at that point, God declares us righteous. That's justification, where God declares us righteous before Him. And it's important to note that it's not that God made us righteous, because if He made us righteous, we wouldn't sin, right? But indeed, in this life, we will battle. And we will reach glory someday and be just as He is, as 1 John 3 tells us. So we are not made righteous, because then also, if we're made righteous, we can earn God's favor, because then we're, we're righteous. But that's not what happened at the cross. We were declared right before God. So that when He looks upon us, He says, I see my Son. I see my Son. And that's what Paul means to say when he says, you've been justified by His blood. So just as Adam's sin was counted to us, at the cross, our sin was counted to Jesus. Turn, His righteousness was counted to us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's justification. The early church fathers would say in Latin, Felix culpa, which means, oh happy fault. What a wonderful, terrible God in human flesh, without sin, would take my sin. How wonderful and how terrible that He would have for me. And we have this great privilege that Jesus is our representative. When you stand before God, whose record of obedience do you want God to judge you by? Yours or that of His Son? When we're justified by faith, God declares us right. This very uh, theological truth gives a lot of comfort. It gives comfort for this very reality that it's not dependent upon our works that God accepts us. I find freedom in that. I find freedom when I know that when I fail, God does not condemn me right there. I'm filled with gratitude that Jesus would do that for me. And I pray that you would be filled with gratitude. You can make sense of your daily battles and knowing that while I'm not perfect, I'm right before God. So I'm going to strive for holiness though in this life. We yearn for heaven at the same time because we long to be like God. And justification by faith stirs those things in our hearts. But Paul didn't stop there. He continues on in this verse. He says, verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Much more. It's an argument from something great to something less. You know, if you ran a marathon, well, how much more are you going to be able to run for three miles? Or, if you climbed a rocky mountain in Colorado, how much more can you walk up the hill on Montrose Harbor? Or your boss might say, can you handle that? And you think, well, I've done things way harder before. Of course I can handle it. And here Paul says, you've been justified by His blood. How much more? That, that was, that's the great thing. How much more is God 
Did Jesus satisfy the wrath of God for you? And that's what he says there in verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by the wrath of God. We hardly have categories for this idea of God's wrath. We see anger and wrath in our day as something that's, that's done with lashing out or is done with vengeance and intent. And God is wrathful, but not in that sense. He's not a UFC fighter who wants to take out somebody. But God's wrath is directed towards sin. Last week, Jose prayed for our congregation. And in that prayer, he mentioned that in God's presence, there is no shadow. He casts no shadow because of His glory. And I like that because that gets to why God is wrathful towards sin. Because in His presence, there is no imperfection. Not one hint of darkness. Which at the same time, is why we can't be before Him without Christ. But indeed, Jesus satisfied God's wrath that was directed toward us. God in His justice has to judge sin. God in His love provided a satisfaction for His wrath. And that was Jesus. We don't need to fear ever. We don't have to fear God's wrath on our lives. And Romans 8 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why he says it, because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. The theological term for that is propitiation. God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus was on the cross. You ever wonder why at the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus asked the Father to take that cup from him? It wasn't so much that Jesus was afraid to suffer physical pain, but to have the Father's wrath directed on him. That brought him great agony. He says, Father, take that cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. And Jesus bore the Father's wrath that was deserved for us. Verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So we've already seen that at the cross, Jesus declares a sinner righteous. At the cross, He satisfied the wrath of God. And here we see that at the cross, Jesus reconciled God and man. We were enemies, it says here. We were enemies of God. Not that we had some dispute, or we didn't have like-mindedness, or there was a disagreement between God and us. But we were enemies of God. And that's why he says in verse 6 that we were weak. We were powerless to change that. And it's at that time that Christ reconciled us with God. He brought peace where there was tension. He brought peace when there's no enmity between God and man. Many of us carry various forms of debt. Debt, home debt, credit card debt, car debt, all forms of debt. And we despise it. 
We want it taken care of. We want to reconcile our debts. But we need to make a payment in order to do that, don't we? That's precisely what Christ did. We are indebted to God because of our sin. Jesus was our payment and reconciled God to man. How are these benefits applied to us? How can we be people who are weak and powerless and become people who are recipients of God's mercy, of God's, of Christ's sacrifice, that His death would justify us, that God's wrath would not be directed toward me anymore, that I could be reconciled with God? How do we get from one place to another? And here I recognize that there are some of us here who might not know that. There are some of us here who don't know what it means to be at peace with God. And that's the reality. And something important for us to recognize when we think about the cross was summed up well by this quote by John Stott. It says this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. We all have to be aware of the reality that it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin It was me. I am just as guilty for nailing Jesus on the cross as that Roman soldier was who held the hammer. And it isn't until we come to grips with our sin, our guilt, that we can then receive the grace offered by God. So today, if you never confessed your sin before God, you never cried out to Him and said, God, I recognize my guilt before You. And I need Jesus in my life. Today's the day to do that. Today is the day to do that. Do not prolong it. And for others of us who perhaps know about this and have trusted in Jesus, what type of passion does this ignite in you? That it was Jesus who took your place and was your substitution. And that He lived a righteous life so that He could bear your sin on a cross and that you might be declared right before God. What does that ignite in your heart? What does it ignite in your heart that you are an object of wrath apart from Jesus? And that when you trust in Him, that wrath... What does it do to you when you think that God and you were enemies and now you can be in fellowship with Him? There's no heart that's too hard. There's no past too shameful. There's no sin too great that God and His love cannot forgive. You may need to cry out to Him today. Say, God, I need you afresh in my life.
Verse 11 is beautiful because it gives us a response about beyond that. In light of all these things, in light of all these riches, these things that Christ accomplished that give us hope for eternity, Paul writes in verse 11, More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This word rejoice is literally we boast. We boast in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. He's talking to us here. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Count yourself among the foolish, please. Because that's who God has chosen to redeem. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus did all of this so that we can never boast in ourselves and say, I earned God. I deserve to be declared righteous. God, I don't deserve the wrath. Jesus died so we can't boast like that before God. And we, we only boast in the cross. We only boast in the cross. And that's why Paul says there in Romans 5, more than that, we also boastfully rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has accomplished these things for us. And if it was Him who pulled us, if it was Him that intervened when we were powerless, if it's His righteousness that's declared to us, if it's Him who satisfied the wrath of God, if it's Him who reconciled us with God, then it's not for us to lose what He has given to us. We can be assured that Christ's work was accomplished on our behalf when we place our faith in Jesus. We cannot lose that hope. First Peter 1 tells us that that hope will never perish, it will never spoil, and it will never fade. It is set in heaven for us. So we have no fear of separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't fear wrath of God. We don't fear enmity with God. But we respond in worship and praise to Him. So what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with the gospel? What are you going to do with the fact that you've been given this opportunity to be made right with God? For some, as I mentioned, today is the day you need to trust in Jesus to be your deliverer. And for others, today we have to renew our zeal to tell others about this gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So let's not be ashamed of it. Crawford Neritz said that there are four essential elements when we share the gospel with someone. Is the fact that we share God's love, 
We have to share the fact that we are sinners. We have to share that Jesus substituted on our behalf to forgive us. And we have to call them to a response. Take that with you today. Pray to God for opportunities. Care enough for somebody to share with them this good news. Well, Tuesday I was asked, Daddy, what is the gospel? The gospel is that God loves you so much that He sent Jesus to die on a cross for you. And if you place your faith in Him, you can have eternal life and be with God forever as a forgiven child of His. Would you do that today? I'm going to ask our prayer counselors to come forward right now. And I want you to take an opportunity as we sing our closing song. If today you are not a child of God and you don't know what it means to be at peace with God, would you come forward today and pray with someone who can introduce you to Jesus? If you're a child of God today, and you need to be renewed in your love and in your declaring of this good news. Ask someone to pray with you, to encourage you. If you have other prayer requests, please do come forward to be prayed for. But as we close here, there is an unshakable hope that is given to those who are in Jesus Christ. And we can hope in God And that has implications on our lives. Would you go forward in that hope today? Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the hope that is ours in you. God, we pray that you might stir our hearts this morning. That we might be faithful with the gospel entrusted to us. And God, might we respond to this word today. If we need to repent, God, because of our lack of passion for it, would we do that today, God? If we're so much more passionate about other things, God, forgive us. Stir within us a yearning to declare the good news to others. Lord, be pleased in our lives. May we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.